Coming up next on the Golf Digest podcast, we're talking golf equipment. We're talking the Hot List, which is our annual review of the newest golf equipment. All coming up next on the Golf Digest podcast. Welcome to the Golf Digest podcast. This is Sam Wyman. Every year in Golf Digest offices, we are inundated with conversation about the hot list, which is our exhaustive, comprehensive, mind-numbing review of the best golf equipment on the uh, market. I use that phrase, mind-numbing, jokingly. Mike Johnson and Mike Satura are our two senior equipment editors who preside over the hot list and have done so for the last 15 years. Uh, The hot list is in the March issue and online at GolfDigest.com. It is basically everything you need to know about the newest, best golf equipment out there. And Mike and Mike both take particular pride in the process uh, that is the hot list because it's not just them getting in a room and picking clubs that look good to them. It uh, involves player testers, scientists, re- retailers. It involves plane trips to uh, meet with manufacturers to better understand their technology. And every year, it's uh, one of the biggest things we do, if not the biggest thing we do, and it involves uh, a lot of feedback, both positive and negative, from people who think that it's uh, really simple. Anyway, uh, Mike and Mike are here to talk about the hot list and uh, what went into it this year, some of the findings that that they came away with, and what you can learn as a consumer when you go to buy golf equipment. So let's go to that interview now. All right, Mike Johnson and Mike Satura, two Golf Digest senior equipment editors, are here in studio, lucky me. Uh, Gentlemen, every year around our offices we talk about the hot list and we widely acknowledge it as the most important and most ambitious thing we do every year so at the risk of self-aggrandizing tell me why the hot list matters to the extent that it does start with you mike stitura the the first answer is because it's really really difficult uh we said that from the very beginning when it was proposed but the fact is to try to do it right requires a lot of people a lot of time and not an insignificant investment of money. Yeah, actually, back up for one second. So, like we said, the hot list is basically this very uh, comprehensive review and rating of all the new uh, golf equipment on the market, and basically deciding which ones are the best. So, prior to 15 years ago, when we started the hot list, how did we review new golf equipment? We didn't. Okay. Okay. So that's the fundamental. We wrote shift. press releases. <laughs> you know, I mean, we did a, a very good job of educating the public about technology in a general way. Uh, we certainly educated the public about what products were new, but we didn't try to say product A went through a process and was slightly better than product B. Mm-hmm. And and quite honestly, nobody really tried to do that. And and. One reason nobody tried to do it is because to do it right requires the kind of investment that we've made over the years and certainly required a, a an institutional risk, right. shall we say, yeah. that, which yeah. we've experienced. And I also think it's um, not just saying this club's the best, but pointing out that these attributes of a club might appeal to a certain type of, of golfer. Um, you know, Club A may not be great for you, it might be great for Mike. Club B might be great for me and not good for either of you. As you were saying before we got into the hot list, we really didn't write about those differences to any great extent, and we certainly didn't do the research and player testing, robot testing, and all that 
to come to the conclusions that we do now. Right. And let's let's lay out one thing on the table right now because you mentioned it, Mike Sichero, which is the institutional risk. So let's clarify that for a second. What we're talking about pretty much is that the 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 golf equipment that we are reviewing and rating is produced by the very companies that advertise with our brand. Is that yeah. Is that is that is that a no, betraying that, trade a, uh, state secrets in no, saying that? No, I, I don't think that we get hit up all yeah. the time on social media and right. websites and all that, calling our integrity into question. I just yawn at it now. Right. Uh, but the fact is, the risk that comes with it is all these companies are very proud of the equipment that they produce. They invest a lot of money in the equipment that they produce, uh, in terms of horsepower and R and D materials manufacturing and all that goes with it. And unless they achieve an absolutely perfect score, you are in some way calling their baby ugly. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that leads to a lot of conversations. But more importantly, it leads us to be as buttoned up as humanly possible to make sure that the decisions and conclusions that we come to that we're comfortable with those. Right. These are not subjective uh, reviews. These are based on a lot of... Um, I mean, a lot of testing and a lot of sort of quantifiable. Yeah, results. I mean, I, I would say it's quantifiable in the sense that that we have a process, and just like when games are played or or any contest is had, if you have rules for your and methods for your process, somebody's going to in that evaluation do better than someone else. Are we saying that? the iron that gets five stars across the board is the longest iron game no that's not Mm -hmm. what we're saying we're saying we had a process with scientists we had a process with retailers we had a process with players and a heavy process with players that essentially determines these clubs were significantly more uh, preferred performed significantly better across a wide range of handicaps and that's why they did well. Yes, do we have launch monitors on the range with every player as part of our process? Yes. Do, do we do independent testing of our own? Yes. Do we do things like uh, CT, spring-like effect testing on drivers to find out whether they conform or not or don't conform to make sure that we're not getting uh, juiced drivers for, for our evaluations? Yes, we do those types of things. But to say that, that our process is about uh, finding the longest driver or finding the one that that uh, in one swing speed produced a certain uh, uh, quantifiable dispersion. That's not what we're trying to mm-hmm. do. We're really trying to, to replicate what happens in the marketplace. In other words, people are fit to clubs. They tr- decide, hey, this is the club that I want to get. This is the club that worked best for me. And across a wide range of players, that's what we're seeing, and that's the clubs that end up doing really well on our hot list, whether they make the list, whether they're gold, or whether they're five stars. Right. Uh, another way to phrase this, and Mike Johnson, maybe you can answer this question, which is that, and again, we're not here to disparage or dismiss other reviews, although maybe you guys want to, but uh, it's fair to say that some of those tests are, uh, or reviews are done by... Uh, a handful of people from start to finish. How many people do you think are involved in the hot list process? Oh had boy, to, uh, had not was, counting obviously because you're consulting with manufacturers when you go visit them. Yeah, and not not counting yeah. the manufacturers, right. but actually hands on, uh, we're probably in the forty to forty-five range, right. uh, and that includes, as Mike said, the 
the academics, the retailers, the player testers. We have one editor with every two players watching their every move. And, you know, as it relates to other uh, product reviews, look, anyone who wants to do any outlet that does product reviews that attempts to get people excited about golf equipment, I applaud that. I applaud the effort. Um, but I th think there are differences in what we do. And, you know, some may attempt to do it by data only. And that's fine. If that's your process, that's your process. Others may attempt to do it by pairing up with a club fitter and having them kind of figure out what's good for others. And, and that's okay, too. I think what we do is, as Mike said, we try to replicate the experience. And the word I like to say is we don't necessarily find the best clubs, mm -hmm. but we're attempting to find the best clubs that resonate with golfers. Mm -hmm. Because when you go to buy golf equipment, yeah, you might look at a launch monitor and be impressed that you picked up three miles an hour or five yards or whatever. But if it sounds like garbage or it doesn't fit your eye or any number of other things, you're probably not going to buy that golf club. So uh, I like to compare it to as big a demo day as you can get. Each club is probably being hit approximately 300 times. Right. Uh, you can get a pretty good feel for what's happening in a golf club over 300 strikes. Right. And it's fair to say, which is a lot of things in the technology world, that the, the, the period that you've done the hot list has been the most dramatic uh, changes or most dramatic period of innovation in golf club technology. Is that, would you say that? L let me, let me, and let me, before you answer that question, another way to phrase it is, um, how much better are golf clubs now versus um, not just 15 years ago, but even versus two or three years ago? Well, we, we did the test specifically this year, and right. we based our, our research on uh, the Golf Data Tech, which is a research firm studying the industry, on essentially the replacement cycle. Mm -hmm. So most people in their tests, in their research, uh, replace their new irons every five to six years. They replace their new driver every four to five years. They replace their new wedge every four years. So we... We took essentially used clubs uh, through our connections with uh, Global Golf and, and other used club uh, distributors and said, okay, let's get this old club and see how it compares to a new club. Uh, we did robot testing. We did player testing. Essentially, what we're seeing in a four- to five-year-old driver is sometimes on the order of 11 yards benefit on your worst hits. Wow. Right. Okay, where it matters. Okay, you know, on a, on a set of irons, we're seeing, you know, six to seven yards benefit, and in weird places, sometimes twenty yards difference because lofts are getting stronger, and even though lofts are getting stronger, uh, the trajectory of ball flight is higher. So again, that's a technology benefit. Wedges are ridiculously bet better. I mean, a four-year-old wedge. I don't care how much you play, if you've been using the same wedge for four years, you're losing, you know, 40% spin out of the rough, maybe more than that, actually. So, uh, I mean, I think there there's clear evidence just in terms of the typical replacement cycle that there's reason to upgrade. I don't want to make the case that there's reason to upgrade every year because I don't think there is, but I think there's reason to upgrade certainly based on average golf or replacement cycles. Yeah, I think the word I would use, is it's maybe not the biggest technological boon ever. I mean, 
you know, going from a feathery to a Haskell ball was a big leap, and going from hickory shafts to steel shafts was a big leap. But I'd say it's the most accelerated mm-hmm. in that we are constantly seeing things that used to take five years to develop and get out in the marketplace are now kind of coming year on year on year. And, and I understand the a little bit of the frustration on the part of the consumer. It's like, hey, I just spent $500 on this driver. Now you're telling me there's something better. Well, yeah, it's better, um, but maybe not better to the point where you need to spend another $500 yet. But if you've gone four years, yeah, it's really better. Mm-hmm. If you've gone six years, it's really, really mm-hmm. better. And, you know, for some of the people we saw at the Pebble Beach Pro-Am, some of the celebs uh, using 11-, 12-year-old clubs, right. They have no idea what they're, they're missing. They're giving out up on. a lot there. They're giving up a lot. And and there's no debating that. I mean, yeah. people people can say all they want. Well, I'm familiar. I'm comfortable with it. It's good enough. No, it really right. isn't. And and presumably those are all people who can't use uh, lack of funds as an excuse. You just, you just want to paint them with a broad <laughs> brush, right? Because, well, that that is, I mean, that's a big part of it because basically you're saying, first of all, you're saying, you need to get fit. So in, in order to get fit, to really maximize what these clubs can provide you, you need to find out what your special specifications are and then basically saying, okay, now you know what you need. Now you have to have, you have to buy new clubs to really get there. And that's, you know, that, that can be painful for sure. people who are, you know, trying to fit it into a budget. Everyone's cost-benefit analysis on playing better golf is different. There's no doubt about it. I, I mean, you know, I have some clubs in my bag that are a little bit on the older end and, I, you know, maybe I don't want to spend Two hundred forty dollars right. on a three wood to upgrade because I think what I have is good enough. Right. So I, I certainly understand people who say if people want to say that I can't argue with them. But if they want to say the old club is as good as the new one, mm-hmm. no, I'm not going to so, agree with that. Well, and, and I think what's different and and clearly paramount in this whole discussion is we have technology that will let you know whether the new stuff is better than your old stuff. Mm-hmm. Bring your old driver, bring your old set of irons in and test it against the new stuff. The launch monitor's right there. The numbers are going to be right there. If you don't bring your old driver when you're looking at a new driver, it doesn't matter. It's a useless exercise. So you can't say, oh, well, I think I hit it about 240. And then you go on a launch monitor and you're hitting at 227. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a pointless discussion. Bring the old stuff and test it against the new stuff. If you're with a good fitter, he's going to tell you, "Hey, I can't. I can get you maybe a yard. Okay, let's this. Let's not worry about your driver. Have you been fit for your putter? Have you been? Have you had your putter adjust? I mean, the thing is, there's there's so much technology that makes this not even a, a personal opinion or a, a preference or I like the look of this better. The numbers say either it is or it isn't, mm-hmm. and that makes the buying decision right. pretty straightforward. And, and to be clear about something that you've always stressed, that the the use, the way people use the hot list is not um, take the hot list and then go to your local re- retailer and buy clubs off the rack, but take the hot list and then what? Take the hot list as a starting point. You know, maybe it's it's just a, a means of educating yourself about what's out there, but it's a starting point, and then say, hey, you know what? I'm really intrigued by these five irons i'm going to actually see them in person and then okay i think i've narrowed it down to two or three then i'm going to get with a fitter and he's going to say hey let's get the right shaft and all these let's see which one of these you deliver more consistently and it's it's as straightforward an exercise mm-hmm. as there is but it can't be oh well golf digest gave that five stars in innovation so that must be fantastic mm-hmm. boom i'm just going to 
walk yeah. right out of the store I, I with think waggling a, it in the aisle way. It's a sifter. Right. Um, you know, we had over 200 clubs submitted for the hot list. So between 25 and 30 in each category, that would be a lot for a consumer to get through. So we narrow it down with our medal winners, but then beyond that, we try to be descriptive enough in the write-ups right. where someone can say, yeah, that sounds like me. That sounds like a club right. I'm interested in. And you narrow it down to, as Mike said, three, four, five, right. and then you can go from there. And certainly as it applies to, to irons, we're talking about um, you know picks for certain types of players. So, And this year you guys added a, a new category. So years past it was players irons, which is the top of the funnel, the best players, and then uh, game improvement irons and super game improvement irons, and you added players distance irons. So tell me about what that means and who that's for. Uh, that's for me, Sam. <laughs> uh, it, I mean, that's not how it was borne out, but honestly, that's the type of player it's for. Uh, you know, I'm a fairly good player, but I'm getting older, and I've lost a half a club on my irons, maybe a little bit more, and this is for that guy who wants to get that half a club back. What's happened over the last five years is technologies have happened in irons that were normally reserved for drivers, mm -hmm. and we've gotten some irons now with incredibly fast faces, that are built for distance. And we were finding out that we were having a hard time deciding a number of these irons, are you a player's iron mm -hmm. or are you a game improvement iron? Right. And now over the last, I would say 18 months, there is now a critical mass of these type of irons where we finally felt comfortable that there are actually enough clubs in this category to create its own mm -hmm. for it and you know make that differentiation between your player's irons for the guy who wants to hit it 186 yards to a back right pin mm -hmm. and exactly 186 right. yards. The player's distance irons is for the guy who wants to put something down, look at it, and not recoil in horror. You know, it still looks like that player's iron he used, but when he makes contact, he's going to get more distance out of it, maybe even a little more height, even though some of the losses are stronger. They're designing them to get you the height you need. And that's a big benefit to a wide array of golfers. Mm -hmm. Mike, I was, was going to say it's, a, it's sort of simplistic, but I think it's accurate at, at, to say that these categories are somewhat handicap dependent. Mm -hmm. So the players' irons category, if, you're, if your handicap is in double digits, you shouldn't look at any of those irons. Mm -hmm. uh, the players' distance category, if your handicap's between, you know, 6 and, and 15, that's probably a good range. If you're outside that range, why are you making the game hard? But mm -hmm. the point is now, instead of having a choice between players or game improvement, players' distance is in the middle. So if your handicap is somewhere between 10 and, and 20, mm -hmm. you're, there's an overlap there. But right. at least you know, okay, this is where I live, either players' distance or game improvement, and I can decide literally in the mm -hmm. hitting bay, I've got a game improvement iron, I've got a player's distance iron, one of them's going to go the way I want it to, one of them is going to be more forgiving than the other, and I, right. I make a decision. And then super game improvement, obviously, is for players who are beginning, players who really are distance challenged, players who are really trajectory challenged, uh, definitely handicaps higher than, than say, 18 mm -hmm. and above. But that's simplistic, but that's certainly a starting sure. point. Uh, Mike, you had referenced uh, wedges as a, a, a category of clubs that has seen great innovation. So is that the the category that you would say has seen the most innovation in the last five or ten years? And if not, what is? Well, let's remember that the category was severely compromised in its innovation in 2009 with, mm -hmm. the, with the groove uh, essentially rollback. And I think what's been interesting in that time frame is that 
I'm not saying that wedges were an afterthought because they were, they did advance technologically. Mm -hmm. But now, because the essentially the effect of grooves had to be diminished, mm -hmm. there's increased options. There's increased thinking about the way wedges are, are delivered at impact. There's increased thinking about the way the club moves through the ground, and so there are ways to get yourself in the right wedge, whether you're a better player or or an average player, and those answers are completely different. So I think from an innovation standpoint, it's not like it goes farther or spins more. It's like it gets better for right. whoever you are. Right. Yeah, Mike doesn't like to answer your question. You asked if it was one I of the areas very, we, yeah, we, uh, we yeah. advance a little right. bit. And, and I, I would say, yeah. And the reason is uh, since 2010, when the groove rule went into effect, uh, the wedge makers first focused on how do we get that spin back? Mm -hmm. how just, do we, to, just to, for people who are not or don't remember the the groove rule, just give me a give me a twenty five second the, explanation. The basic was. answer was, you know, grooves used to be able to be a certain configuration, mm -hmm. for lack of a better phrase, U grooves mm -hmm. or box grooves with, you know, certain edge to them right. that really, you know, you could get a lot of spin on the right. ball. Uh, the USGA put the rules in to where you had to have more of a V shape. The edges couldn't be quite as sharp, right. uh, so they that supposedly was going to take away spin, hope to mitigate a little bit of this bomb and gouge right. style of golf at the elite level. Uh, but when you put the handcuffs on R&D people, they eventually turn it into an opportunity. Sure. Right. And, and over time, what they've been able to do is not only come up with grooves mm -hmm. that perform every bit as good as the old grooves, but now they've added things like surface roughness mm -hmm. in between the grooves, mm -hmm. a little extra roughness to get a little more spin. A lot of the wedge makers have paid attention to center of gravity location in the wedges, trying to create a little higher flight on the lower lofted wedges that are used more like pseudo pitching wedges and a little lower penetrating flight on the higher lofts to give you more control with your you know high lofted wedges. So, you know, for a club that at first glance, is about as simple an instrument sure. as there is in golf. They have done a lot to it over the last seven, eight years. Yeah, and let's talk about putters for a second because I'm someone who just loves the look of a blade putter. I don't like the kind of boxy look of mallet putters, but both of you have seen my putting stroke, and you would probably say that I shouldn't be so vain because in a lot of ways, uh, like mallet putters are where the real technology is these days for, for, for certain players at least. Yeah, no doubt about it, and I don't think you have to look any further than the PGA Tour to mm -hmm. see a lot of that, too. Uh, the Tour used to be a domain of blade putters and ping answer knockoffs mm -hmm. and, and the like. And, you know, now look at the top of the world rankings. You know, Dustin Johnson using a mallet. Uh, John Rahm using a mallet. Uh, Justin Thomas using a mallet. And they're not just using mallets. They're using what they call toe-hang mallets, mm -hmm. which is kind of a relatively new thing that's come into vogue, and that's uh, to, for players who have an arc in their stroke, which used to be the domain of blade putters. Right. You know, now you can get the benefit of a putter that's fit to that type right. of stroke, but you get all the extras that come with a mallet. Mm -hmm. Better alignment features, mm -hmm. more stability, probably better performance on mishit right. putts. There's a lot, lot of reasons to go to a mallet. So you like three putting, in other I'm words. A, that's I'm why you like blade putters. Yes, I'm good. a big fan of three putting. I, as long as I look good, that's all that really matters to me. So, <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, a common criticism of the hot list, which you guys are familiar with, which is that small companies don't surface as much as the big companies, and that goes back to 
some of what we were talking about before. People think have their conspiracy theories about why that is. Uh, they don't show up as frequently, but they do show up. Right. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about other uh, outlets doing things. Um, you know, our chief competitor, Golf Magazine, we just saw their club test, and they had, I think, seven companies represented. Mm-hmm. We don't adhere to that philosophy. We adhere to the philosophy if a company has a product and they want to nominate it, we're going to consider it. Sure. Even and if they don't want to nominate it, we want to consider it. And if they don't right. want to nominate we've come it. Up, we've uh, we've dealt with that before. We, right. we will, we will yeah. go out and effort every yeah. way to get those clubs. But I think if you look at our list this year, you know, a company like Bettinardi, mm-hmm. which has two gold medals in putters, uh, you know, they make really good right. stuff. And right. it resonates with players. Uh Bloodline Golf, which has a very unusual putter that stands up by itself and it's different looking, it's a different feeling, but you know what? It got in the competition and our academics thought it was a pretty cool idea and our player testers thought it reacted really well. That makes the hot list. So, uh, yeah, big companies are big companies and they kind of dominate. They dominate because they have products in every category, for one, and they dominate because they spend ungodly amounts of money on R&D, right. manufacturing, quality control right. plays a role in it too. Um, so the odds of them producing a club that's really good Yeah, they're not just stamping their be, logo on a, on a club and, and exactly. rolling them out. It's right. obviously going to be very high. But over the years, we have found a number of smaller companies that have great products that resonate with our panel, and we put them on the list. And for me, and I think for Mike too, Doing the hot list, that's the most satisfying mm-hmm. part of it, is finding those clubs and getting those clubs out in front of our readers when they may not right. hear them otherwise. Right. Yeah, I mean, certainly you have, you have companies like Hanma, you have Epon, you have Zexio, you have uh, companies that are not going to be dominating the commercial landscape in any real way. Uh, I would say that sometimes small companies do get penalized in our process because they have not made a commitment to fitting. They mm-hmm. haven't made a commitment to having uh, all sorts of options that allow for mm-hmm. uh, a widespread of player types that are going to fit into their clubs. They, they don't have adjustability in a driver, let's say, or, or uh, limited lofts. Limited lofts. They don't have any commitment to uh, fitting in any widespread way. So, I mean, I think there, there are elements there that, that maybe sometimes hurt a smaller company, the fact is, if you perform well in our essentially our our player evaluations, which are are focused on the performance criterion and the look, sound, and feel criterion, if you do well in those two, and and you have some sort of explanation for why you do and what you do, and and what you do is actually significant and and meaningful according to our scientific evaluations you're going to be on the hot list. I mean, people get caught up in the fact that one of our criteria is demand. Mm-hmm. Demand is 5% of right. a product score. So so still pretty small. Pretty small. And if you actually are functioning as a company, you're not going to be severely penalized in demand. You might get, say, if demand is 5 out of the 100 points possible that you could get, if the best possible product in our in that category is going to get five Mm -hmm. if you're a functioning company you're probably going to get at worst two and a half or three points Mm -hmm. so you're going to be trailing by two points getting then getting into the meat of the category so i mean i think the the notion is yes it's more difficult for a small company but it's not 
anywhere near impossible. And if you if you have a product that's significant and performs well and is interesting, you're going to be in the pages of Golf Digest. Yeah. yeah, and it's not just putter companies. I mean, this year we had a KZG hybrid on the list. We had a set of irons from Yonex, set of irons from Hanma. I mean, these are not overly well-known companies mm-hmm. uh, by a large majority of golfers. And uh, But as, as Mike said, if you're in the game and you make an earnest effort, uh, you have a very legit chance of getting on the list. Let me ask you uh, a loaded question, which is hot list related, but, but just a general equipment question, which is um, driver adjustability. I would say of the 10 guys I play golf with on a regular basis, I, I don't know this for sure, but I bet eight of them do not use the adjustability functions on their drivers. And these guys are all these are guys who consider themselves serious golfers. To that, you would say they are morons, nitwits. Um, well, I, I would want more information <laughs> if they went and got fit, yeah. and the fitter adjusted the driver to what they should be, and they happened to get it right. There's well, really that, yeah, no that's there's really no yeah. reason to change. Right, no, it. that I understand. I'm um, talking about guys who just don't even know about the functionality. But at if all. guys just buy something off the rack and they don't attempt, unless they're hitting every fairway. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are not optimizing the ability of that club. Mm-hmm. And again, we we preach forever about the value of fitting. The the secret dirty truth about adjustable drivers is, you have an adjustable driver. Take two buckets of range balls and just take the wrench mm-hmm. and change it and see what happens as you go through that bucket of range balls. If it doesn't make any difference to you, okay, right. you're, you're you're probably <laughs> blind, but you right. don't. You, there's no harm in making those adjustments and then putting it back to wherever it was in its neutral position. But to, to not at right. least know what those things might do for your game. I mean, what I would guess those... What do you miss like me? Well, you don't... What's really. your predominant miss, though? Left. What are you, what are you trying you to go. avoid? Yeah. yeah. Let's right. eliminate one of those. Right. Yeah. I, I think we saw... Uh, we haven't vetted all the results. We haven't crunched all the numbers, but we did a test down in Orlando... Uh, bringing just random golfers whose tendency was to hit the ball a little bit to the right, and we had them hit their driver, and then we gave them a draw-biased driver, but they didn't know it was a draw-biased driver. And like I said, we haven't crunched the numbers yet, but I remember looking at the numbers, and I really remember looking at the ball flight. Right. And the ball flight definitely straightened out for these people. So, I mean... It's it's real. Like I said, if, if you are not hitting it, Hitting the fairway regularly, mm-hmm. and you have an adjustable driver, I don't know what you're waiting for. Um, the categories, and I guess I would say clubs from this year's hot list that generated the most debate, both internally and externally, what would those be? Wedges, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a big debate on, on whether this overwhelming plethora of 18, 19, 20, 22 options is the exact best way to go or whether a more simplistic approach to to lofts and bounce and sole grinds is actually more beneficial whether you can design a wedge for 80 plus percent of players who have no skills like me and 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 that's sufficient you know i think there was a big debate also about driver adjustability mm-hmm. whether whether again Lots of adjustability is really important, or maybe just two or three yeah. levels of adjustability is enough. And 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 the fact is, if somebody's trying to eliminate uh, for a right hander the right side of the 
golf course? Does he need 12 different ways to make it go less right? Or does he need just one way to make it less go less right? So, I mean, I think there's, you know, when we have these debates in, in chambers, they get heated and they're really about super small shades of right. excellence right. that in, in the grand scheme of things, both of those technologies are super valuable. Right. Yeah, I mean, what a lot of everyday players don't understand is that Golf club design is a constant series of trade-offs. Mm -hmm. Every time, <clears throat> excuse me, every time a designer wants to attempt to do something, they're probably trading off in another area. Mm -hmm. So if you want to have tracks with weights that go in three different directions, that costs you weight mm -hmm. that you cannot use to do something else. Uh, if you want to just slug some weight in the heel and create a draw bias driver, that frees you up to do some other things that you might want to do. So these are the things that we discuss not only internally, but with our academic panel to really have them come back to us and say, here's kind of a hierarchy of things that we think are really important. And here, this may be important, like say a fast face on a driver, but everybody's got a fast right. face on a driver. So it's pretty much, don't worry about that. So let's focus on whether it's adjustability or whether it's aerodynamics or whether it's high moment of inertia, uh, which, you know, stability on off-center hits, mitigating distance losses on off-center hits. Those are the things we try to put a value to and see who did it best and, importantly, who was able to explain it to us best. Yeah, I think that's that idea of trade-offs is – is, is an interesting discussion. So whether those trade-offs in terms of uh, achieving a, a certain measured number mm -hmm. better than somebody else, those probably exist. Whether uh, you, you as an individual golfer can get the best possible performance with driver A as opposed to driver B has nothing to do with whether one's more adjustable or less adjustable. It has to do with how you fit into a certain driver. Can you better match my swing with a driver that adjusts thousand plus ways? Mm -hmm. I think you probably can. To get there, am I giving up something in forgiveness? I'd say maybe you are, but you are giving up a lot less in forgiveness than you gave up five years ago. Sure. So I think we're getting closer to having your cake and eating it too. Yeah. Every year around this time, we talk about whether, and this might be the final question, about whether we've sort of reached the the end of the line in terms of they just can't innovate anymore. And every year it seems like you guys are surprised that they still have more to give. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah. I'm, I, every year we finish the hot list, I said, I'm done. We're done. We don't <laughs> have to do this anymore. <laughs> I'm not surprised at all. And, uh, you know, I think you look at this year's drivers – and you just look at all the different ways these companies are approaching things, mm -hmm. there's clearly not one thought on how to get to golf equipment nirvana. I mean, you have one with a movable weight track, you have another one with a couple of different models and a really nifty you know, idea on how to increase speed, you have one with face milling, you have another one putting a lot of weight low and deep to maximize stability, you have one with kind of a slot in the sole, I mean, it goes on and on and on, and you know, you have one with holes in the head. Mm -hmm. um, it, it just keeps going on endlessly. Um, I don't think we're anywhere near the end. The point being, is this year's driver better than last year's? Yes. Is it significantly so? Some years, yes. Some right. years, maybe right. not. 
but they are you add up the incremental benefits and they become big benefits so uh you know i don't think we're anywhere close to the end right well mike johnson mike satura um exhaustive effort again in putting together this hot list which is online on golfletters.com and obviously in the march issue as well thanks to you both happy to do it same time next year all right thanks to mike and mike for joining me on this week's golf digest podcast again Check out the entire hot list online at golfdigest.com or in the March issue. And uh, by all means, check back next week to see who our guests are and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts.